3: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The RTE crisis continues, but there's a new boss in town. On his first day, Kevin Backers tells RTE staff that he's appalled by the payment scandal and he vows to make sweeping changes.
4: We've tried to set out as comprehensively as I could the plans today, but as I've made clear yesterday, it's the action that counts and that's what will be judged on.
3: Also on the programme tonight, a scandal at the BBC as a presenter is taken off air over allegations they paid a teenager for explicit photos. However, tonight the young person has denied the claims published in The Sun newspaper. The tabloid is standing by its story. Floods across the globe as planet Earth hits record temperatures. Are we at a new tipping point in the climate crisis? And later, should the 12th of July be a public holiday south of the border? You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag tonightVMTV. RTE's new boss says change is essential if the national broadcaster wants to rebuild trust. Kevin Backhurst's first official day saw him overhaul the broadcaster's executive board. In a press conference today, he also said that a decision on Ryan Tuberty's future will be made soon. Here's our news correspondent, Richard Chambers, on the new director general's first day in the job.
5: Kevin Backhurst meets the press as he begins the job of trying to claw back RTE's trust and confidence. In an early morning email to staff, he announced the executive responsible for RTE's day-to-day running was being stood down and announced a new interim leadership
4: team. This is only day one, so we've tried to set out as comprehensively as I could the plans today. But as I've made clear yesterday, is the action that counts, and that's what will be judged on.
5: No place on the new leadership team for Jim Jennings, Director of Content, Geraldine O'Leary, who has announced her early retirement, and Richard Collins, the CFO, who faced bruising questioning before the Oireachtas.
4: So he's not on the new leadership team. He's helping us with Oireachtas inquiries and other work, but he's um, stood back from from his day-to-day role as uh, CFO.
5: At the root of this scandal, hundreds of thousands of euro in secret payments to RTE's top star Ryan Tuberty, the new director general not drawn on the former Late Late Show presenter's future. and he signaled RTE may distance itself from agent Noel Kelly.
4: As far as Ryan goes, I mean we'll have to see how the week goes and what comes out this this week. Um, We'll have to take a decision on that soon, for for everyone's sake, for our sake and for Ryan's sake. Uh, On the question of the agent, I don't want to single out an individual agent. I don't think it's personally healthy that any single agent um, has such power in any particular country
5: this controversy has plunged the national broadcaster into a crisis like never before. Kevin backhurst wasting little time in clarifying that some things might need to be cut and that includes top presenters or full radio stations
4: we have to look at all services you know we have to look at everything we do and what we can afford to carry on doing I mean maybe that RT needs to be smaller in years to come.
5: Kevin Backhurst's words, a real statement of intent as he begins the work of trying to restore trust in the national broadcaster. But before RTE can look to its future, it must reckon with its past. Tomorrow's Committee Committee's hearing from Ryan Tuberty and his agent Noel Kelly, a real box office centrepiece in a pivotal week in the history of the state broadcaster. Richard Chambers, Virgin Media News at RTE.
3: Well, I'm joined by Fianna Fáil, Senator Malcolm Byrne, People Before Profit TD, Breed Smith. Business Post political correspondent, Daniel Murray and Professor Roddy Flynn from Dublin City University's School of Communications. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Daniel, I want to come to you first. um, Day one on the job for Kevin Backhurst. What was he attempting to do today um, in making those changes to the executive board? There are four names there that are are being essentially uh, replaced in their roles on on the board. Was it enough to provide some reassurance that the organisation will be embarking on change and addressing this crisis?
1: Yeah, I think certainly Kevin Backhurst was trying to draw a line in the sand uh, today, and um, everybody was expecting big news over the weekend, speaking to political sources, um, and today he delivered that in standing down a number of members um, of the board, some of whom um, resigned in in advance, um, and then announcing new members of of the board, but really a a reconstituted board. So um, he came in and showed that he he meant business, and he needed to do that because the controversy obviously has rolled on for a couple of weeks now um, and shows no sign of a um, we have Ryan Turberty and Noel Kelly appearing in front of this committee uh, tomorrow, and depending what comes out of that, um, we could see this go on for another few weeks yet.
3: So there's a new interim leadership team announced. So, so what happened at uh, the old team, many of whom we saw in front of the Oireachtas committee hearings in the past fortnight? Will they still be up giving evidence there? Will be, they be working away in the background and trying to bring clarity uh, to what's happened at the very top of the organisation?
1: It depends. Some members of the team are still employees of of RTE and have stood back from their roles, like Richard Collins, as, as Backrest was, was describing there. And other members have announced that they've they've resigned from their roles. So there's a difficulty in terms of being able to compel people to, to participate in committees. You would imagine because of their participation to date and because of their central involvement in this, that they'll they'll continue to do so. Um, uh, but certainly I think the new interim leadership team that's in place, they will all be working together to try and provide the information to the Eurectus and to the multiple reviews that are now underway uh, into RTE.
3: Of course, we have Kevin Backhurst, um, Roddy, before and rock committee himself later this week. In terms of the decisions he's made on day one, and you presume he was working right in the run-up to his first day on the job, um, in order to, to be able to announce those changes today. I suppose how untenable had those positions uh, become? And... In terms of a strategy now Kevin Backhurst will be employing, what's this key strategy now that he'll be using to 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 restore trust?
6: Well, I mean, I would perhaps ask whether actually how much of this is within his gift, I mean, any strategy might have. The removal of the executive board was, I mean, for a foregone conclusion. They have become the kind of the bad guys in the room, if you like, um, and the focus, if you like, of kind of public ire and indeed political ire over the last couple of uh, weeks because of the attention they received in front of the uh, in front of those uh, committees. I mean, to to some extent, I'm not saying it's entirely insignificant, but there's a degree of theatre about it. Like they had to be seen to be removed, um, and you, one might actually argue that based on the um, the testimony that we had over the last few weeks that the executive hadn't been operating particularly effectively anyway it appears that they genuinely weren't speaking to one another what kind of executive board exists if they're not in fact swapping information back and forth and i thought one of the interesting things it was interesting that backhurst had to say today in the future that kind of siloed left hand not knowing what the right hand is going to be doing is not going to be the way that we are you know basically going to do this um in terms of what he can do going forward um well he's made an announcement about perhaps having uh, a kind of a public register of um, RTE staff's interests, which I think is interesting. Uh, it's obviously something which applies to, for example, politicians. You know, via the standards in public office, um, I have to make a declaration as an academic um, employee of a university of these things. I think it's not unreasonable that um, maybe public service broadcasters, who are shaping our reality, might give us some sense of whether there are external factors maybe um, shaping that. But there are other things that are just in, that are simply outside Backhurst's control, such as. Well, I mean, I don't think this issue... I, th- I think this issue is a structural issue rather than an issue of a couple of bad apples, if you like, which is, to a certain extent, how it's tempting to frame it, that if we just get rid of these people and put in other people, then everything's going to be fine. For me, the structural issues lie with essentially the, 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 the dual nature of RTE. And you might come back to this, but it's funding model, whether it's funded um, from public sources, private sources, or the model that it currently has... I think there's a problem um, with that model. I think that model has been problematic probably since the beginning of broadcasting going back to the 1920s. But certainly since the Broadcasting Act in 1960, RTE, for the almost entirety of its existence, has relied for the bulk of its income, for the majority of its income, on commercial revenues, up until 2008 when things went pear-shaped with the economy in general. That's really unusual by, by international standards.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, something I was struck by, uh, Kevin Backhurst, was asked about the influence of agents, um, Malcolm, um, saying he believed that agents have too much influence at the station. I don't think it's a healthy market where individual agents wield such power, and this is something I wish to address as Director-General. So is it um, right, do you believe, that that... Ortee continues negotiating with agents for, for on-air presenter salaries, be they contractors, their contractors? Bl-
0: bl- bluntly, no. And I think one thing that became very clear to us uh, at the O'Ock, This Media Committee was the level of power that Noel Kelly had. Uh, among the questions that I had been asking was about who was in the room when the negotiations were happening. It was essentially a case that Noel Kelly could walk in on behalf of uh, his clients meet with the director general, and for the most part, set out the terms of the particular contracts for the people uh, that uh, that he represented. Um, I, I agree with Roddy. I mean, one of the things that a number of us have been calling for for quite a long period, in fact, was a register of interests, uh, because it's. You know, as politicians, we have to declare it. But certainly, for instance, if somebody is doing a segment on their programme about motoring and at the same time they have a deal with a particular car company, I think the public is entitled to know that. And not just the presenter, but also uh, the producer of the programme and indeed senior personnel in RTE. So would
3: you see that register of interest then being um, released the same as... um on our salaries would would be released in that regard. Uh,
0: absolutely. And I think one of the things that, I mean, Kevin Backhurst made very clear today that in Orti's annual report, that that element of transparency uh, will now come about. Uh, I, I think Kevin Backhurst had a good day today. I appreciate he couldn't answer everything. It's a bit of a baptism of, of fire for him. But I think certainly the fact that, you know, his first communication early this morning was with staff by email. He certainly then sent that email on to members of the Oireachtas Uh, committee. He's been out front and saying, look, we're going to be judged by our actions, but I'm interested in transparency. He's also clearly interested in accountability. I think as a signal, the fact that the executive board had to step down on his first day, it was a positive signal. Um, He's waiting to see, obviously, what comes out uh, of the Oireachtas committees. And I, I think what is key, and he acknowledges more come out, I mean, there are you know, Minister Catherine Martin has now sent in uh, two av- expert advisory groups, one to address culture and one to address uh, HR issues within the broadcaster, as well as a forensic accountant uh, to look at some of the financial issues. Um, there is that bigger picture issue, and I agree with Roddy, around the long-term funding model uh, of public sector broadcasting. It's vital in a democracy. My view is, I think, you know, the licence fee, which essentially does stretch back to the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1926, uh, it's a solution for funding for the analogue age. Okay. We, we need to look at, I believe, funding public sector broadcasting out of general taxation, and that means abolishing the, ta- the licence fee.
3: OK, I'm, I'm, um, yeah, we'll get on to that. On that issue, um, And the licence fee has come up consistently because we are hearing from so many people, members of the public, who are unhappy about all of this, saying they simply won't pay their license fee. That obviously will be a concern for the broadcaster as well, um, Breed. Um, And what what would you say to people who are considering whether they do or not?
7: Well, first of all, I think what this scandal has done has shone, shone a light on the kind of society we live in. And it has shown people that there are those at the top who are considered talent and are worth paying very well. And then there's the rest, the minions who are basically disregarded And it's been watched by so many people. I mean, I heard tonight that it's going to be streamlined on on, uh, TV screens and pubs tomorrow. People are actually seeing it as an event, like a a sports thing, because it is so dramatic and is so much kind of hurting people as well. And that is why they're saying, I'm not paying my TV licence anymore. They're really hurt about this. But don't forget, there are thousands of people every year who are brought to court for not paying their TV licence. And many have been sent to jail in the past And we heard that statement from the judge during the week in the district court where he really lambasted RTE and the carry-on that's, that's, that we've seen. But look, I, so I in think... in this
3: current, with, with this crisis, should people be paying their TV licence? What would you say? Well, I,
7: I think I'm not surprised at all that people are so disgusted that they're saying no. They're voting with their own feet. I'm not surprised by this at all. When you have this in, astronomical amount of money being paid to a few of the talent at the top, mm. and then it's being covered up, of course people are going to be utterly disgusted. But I want to agree with Kevin, uh, sorry, with Roddy here, that we do need to look at the the funding model and the the dual funding model of some uh, commercial and some public funding is not working and it doesn't work and it is extraordinary that we have a public broadcaster that's funded on that way. Now, we looked at this when so I was would you say, the...
3: what, what, would, what would your take be on yeah. that, Breed? Would you say that we need to make it fully publicly funded and, and, yes, you know, sec- and taxation? Yes, absolutely, and I think
7: there is so much money to be gathered there from digital platforms who pay very little in taxes... They make a huge amount of money by advertising in this country. We need to go after that sort of 1% tax on these companies would yield us the same as we're putting into into RTE at the moment between uh, fees and what the government give, about 500 million a year. And this is a tiny amount on the taxes of the profits of these digital platforms. And we need to move to looking to that model because we're not going to uh, go after penalising ordinary people again and looking for more taxes off them. It has to come from the, the central tax stream, but then that has to be funded in other ways. And there are so many digital communications companies. Okay, but you are that saying you are
3: saying no there shouldn't be a commercial element to RTE's future yeah, absolutely. because a, it
7: should be public broadcasting well, it, properly funded and it's, run.
3: It's interesting on that one, um, Daniel, because what we heard today from Kevin Backhurst was that if you make it fully publicly funded, you're going to have a much smaller broadcaster with much less content. And if, you know, that that there is no appetite for that. Um, And if you are relying then on on doubling a licence fee, then there is no appetite for that either. So that this dual funding... Works as a model even though it's an unusual beast.
1: Yeah, certainly Um, and that was something I think that many staff in RT would have been quite concerned about hearing today. He was saying that there's a chance in the future RT just needs to be smaller and that would certainly be the case under an exchequer only uh, funded model. Um, They will be keeping a very close eye on the TV licence payments over over the next while because as you say there's concerns anecdotally that people are saying we're not going to pay it. Now Backhurst today was saying that they seem to be holding up okay but I would say it's going to take a month or two before we see that start to actually uh, feed through uh, uh, and before we actually know whether or not there's going to be a funding crisis in RT towards the end of this year. Now, of course, there's already a funding crisis in RT and the Future Media Commission made proposals only in the last year about this and it recommended an exchequer um, funded model, but the government uh, rejected that. Um, So this is uh, something that maybe is coming back onto the table now uh, in a way that it wasn't before um, and that this whole controversy might fast track.
3: Yeah, it's interesting too, Rod, Roddy, that the, the future of big salaries has come into all of this. Um, and um, what we heard from Kevin Backers was he wasn't in favour of a salary cap, but he would like to bring salaries down. Do you think, you know, from a from a, uh, an, an audience point of view, from people watching at home and watching all of this unfold, that that's something the general public would like to see, um, as well as people working within RTE who probably feel very disgruntled at the pay gap they're seeing?
6: I think they would. I don't think it's relevant, to be honest, um, because it's a it's a drop in the ocean of what the issue is. Um, it's less than 1% of RTE's um, total income. I understand that it's a very emotive issue, um, but... Um, that is not going to solve RTÉ's problems one whit. It's, I, I think, it's a distraction. To be
3: absolutely honest with you. Um, so you you think, as it stands, the salaries when you're looking at salaries of over five hundred thousand euro a year. I don't think it matters. That that, that, that doesn't matter. I I,
6: I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, that I In approve. A I'm, this size I'm not saying I'm not saying that, that, I, that I approve of that. But I'm saying that as if you let's say you you capped it at say one hundred and fifty thousand, right? what possible difference would that possibly make to RTE's overall ongoing kind of funding issues? So I I get the politics of that and the kind of the the visuals of that, but I don't think it's relevant to the, that the scale of the issue is so much larger than that. And just to take issue with, I mean, it's actually something Kevin Backer said today, and I I thought it was a little bit dispiriting, his talk about the fact that we're looking at a smaller RTE because people weren't gonna stand for the idea of doubling the license fee. To limit yourself to thinking about the funding of public service broadcasting in terms of that model, just to let me finish this point, to finish that model, is a a, a failure of imagination. There are a million different ways of doing this. There are ways of doing this that are far more progressive than the license fee. Um, I've cited this example on a number of occasions, but I do like what goes on in Finland. I do like what goes on in Denmark. I do like what goes on in Sweden. In Finland, there's a thing called the YLE tax, it's a broadcasting tax, it's a progressive tax. You don't start paying it until you earn 14,000 euro or more. It tops out at 163 uh, euros per person, you will not pay more than that. But it's also um, levied on businesses, up to 3,000 euros per business, right? Finland has a population of 5.5 million people, we have a population of 5.1, 5.2 million people. That raises over half a billion euros a year. YLE takes no commercial funding, right? If it can be done in Finland, it can be done in this country and it's not even hard. That's why I think the focus on the salaries of individual um, presenters is kind of
3: irrelevant. I just think... To the, to it, the, big, it, to the bigger issue on, on the funding of, of the national really broadcast. We can have a fully, However, a fully publicly it's funded this, public service It is service where media this scandal started, and it is the reason why we are seeing, at least the secret payments, is the reason why we're seeing Ryan Tuberty and, and Noel Kelly now before um, your, the media committee, of which you're a member, uh, Malcolm, tomorrow, and the public accounts committee. I think they're first up before the public accounts committee. Um, we're hearing word that there was unhappiness among politicians, that you haven't got information and you haven't got documents um, ahead of this meeting tomorrow. The deadline is 8.30 in the morning. Are you likely to get them landing in your inbox at 8.29am?
0: I I, I think that is the case. And we are, I mean, we're getting a lot of information uh, at the moment. I think what has been killing RT in the last Are you getting information right
3: now regarding this meeting tomorrow, Uh, this committee session?
0: No, we haven't as yet. The latest piece of correspondence we would have received would have been that there will be a solicitor accompanying both uh, Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly. Uh, I think Roddy's points are are correct, but it does come back to the question around the culture um, Mm -hmm. within RTE. And I mean, I was very happy when I heard Shuni Rahalig, when she appeared before our committee, she said, look, one of the problems is, is that RTE has been competing against itself. You know, you have people who are coming in who are saying we'll walk and Noel Kelly says, well, if you know, you want my clients to remain, we're gonna have to do this deal. And there were other elements, uh, you know, side elements attached on apart uh, from pay. So I think we do need to address that culture. There has to be transparency and accountability in and order for think... us to build back up team. But I, 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 yeah. I do think Roddy is absolutely right. We have to have the debate around the future of public sector broadcasting because it's critical in a democracy. Um, yes, Finland or indeed Denmark are good examples. There are other cases around the world the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, for instance, which broke off an arm to develop ABC commercial. Uh, I think it's in the interest of the staff uh, you know the ordinary, but hardworking com- the staff. The government could Orgy be
3: accused well. of ignoring all of this. I mean, there has been the future equation, and now we're I'm, having and now we're having I'm, this conversation. I'm,
0: I'm, I, I, I entirely and you're talking accept about that. progressive yeah. models in I, other I countries. Am, I entirely accept that you've ignored, that. That. But, but politically, it's 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 also one of those real hot potatoes. Uh, and I know. Well, is it
3: only, yeah, and is it only an issue now that these secret payments I have gone before it, and, well, and well, everyone I
0: can, is important in the story? The this Media Committee has been dealing with this issue over the last three years. We've mentioned, I mean, Daniel mentioned in terms of the future Media Commission report, government actually accepted 49 of the 50 recommendations. Uh, I would have agreed with the 50th recommendation. Yeah,
7: just state
3: because funding. something's a hot potato, well, briefs, does that mean you, that you put it on the back burner? When I was burner? on the
7: previous Climate and Communications Committee, it wasn't separated off. Communications and climate were the one thing under Richard Bruton. We spend hours and hours and hours looking at this issue which is where people came up with the various suggestions and models of funding. There was a seminar in Dublin uh, Castle for two days. Yeah. For God's sake, it's been looked at. Oh, but uh, all of the reports uh, and all of the I, suggestions are sat on shelves. I agree. But- and as well as that, and I, this is a thing I think we need to delve into much more, is the appointments to many of these boards were made by government. The same is true of Onboard Planola, the same is true of the horse racing industry, the same is true of the FAI. Government make the well, point, well, and, and then when they go the, wrong, in, no, there's, well, no, there's, there's
0: no, defense no accountability. In defence of the board here, and, and this is for something, in defence of the board or the Orchi authority in this case, as soon as they became aware, the current authority, as soon as they became aware of some of the problems, I believe that they acted correctly. I think the only mistake pro- probably Shuni Rahalig made was not telling the minister that she'd requested okay. D Forbes' resignation. But other than that, I think the authority have acted correctly. It's a big challenge for the new chair and chief executive, but I would say I think that today is a good start. But that does not ignore uh, the bigger picture funding question. And, and, and I agree, breed. it's been kicked down the road, but you know politically how difficult it is to look at changing charges or, or introducing. I mean, I, I, I could well, guarantee some of your colleagues, them to, if okay. we introduced a digital oh, tax, some of your colleagues absolutely. would be on the streets protesting. No,
7: not, not a digital tax on the company's profits. You're missing the point. The whole lot is missing the point. There are astronomical profits being
2: made by
7: in this country through advertising. We take 1%, which is a tiny amount of them, and we completely fund RTE. We're not looking at a smaller RTE okay. in the future. Just to so say I know, like as just well,
1: speaking to government sources over the weekend, regardless of the debate around this, uh, there's a view that it'll be 2025 at least before a new funding model is put in place. So that leaves a few years in between, whereby there's an interim funding arrangement that was kind of mm-hmm. agreed with the Future Media okay. Commission, kind of an agreed bailout every year. The quantum of that bailout now will be decided by how much TV license fees fall by, and how much advertisers flee from RT in the next one. Let,
3: let's talk briefly about tomorrow and uh, Ryan Tuberty and Neil Kelly's appearance. Um, what can we expect in terms of, of questioning there, Daniel? And what sort of clarity can people hope to glean from those two sessions um, tomorrow at 11am, I think at 3pm?
1: Uh, yeah, there's going to be two marathon, pretty much back-to-back um, sessions with Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly, neither of which have ever been in a forum like this before. So I think a lot of people are going to be watching to see how the two men um, account for themselves. Um, I think there's going to be a number of things that are going to be focused on. Um, chief amongst them is the difference between the public and the actual earnings of Ryan Tuberty. What did Ryan Tuberty know about that? They were understated by about 345,000. What did he know about that? What was Kelly's role in that? What was Kelly's role in the Reynolds deal and the tripartite agreement that underpinned all of that whose suggestion was it for RT to underwrite this? And and what was Tuberty's knowledge of of all of these? And was Tuberty giving direction on any of these things? So I think there's going to be a lot of difficult questions for Tuberty in in particular. It's going to be interesting to watch the dynamic between uh, the two men as well, I think, because um, Noel Kelly has a couple of things to be balancing here. He has other clients that he still has on his books and he wants to show that he stands up for his clients. And in some ways, you don't really see a way out of this for Tuberty except by somehow pinning it uh, on Kelly. Now, having said that, I'm sure they're just going to come in and give us uh, the the facts. Um, uh, But it it, it is a make or break for for Tuberty's career tomorrow. I think uh, in terms of uh, Irish broadcasting, either we come out of those committees um, feeling empathy for him or we come out of those committees feeling the opposite. And I think that'll determine whether or not we see him back on air.
3: OK, and Virgin Media One will be broadcasting tomorrow's A Rock This hearings featuring Ryan Tuberty and his agent Noel Kelly, a news special starting at 11am with the Public Accounts Committee, followed by the Media Committee hearing uh, at 3pm. And my panel is staying on with me next, the scandal rocking the BBC and a controversial call to make the 12th of July a public holiday south of the border. Do you stay with us? BBC has suspended a presenter who's alleged to have paid a teenager for sexually explicit photos. However, the young person at the centre of the scandal says that claims about the presenter are totally wrong. The broadcaster said it was working to establish the facts of a complex and fast-moving set of circumstances, while London's Metropolitan Police said there's currently no investigation underway. The Sun newspaper is tonight standing by its story. Well, let's go live now to London to join journalist Endo Brady for the latest on this scandal. And Endo, what more uh, do we know about all of this uh, tonight and this counterclaim from the person at the heart of the story?
8: There are a couple of significant developments today. So first of all, BBC management had an online meeting with detectives from the Metropolitan Police's Specialist Crime Command. And when that meeting wrapped up, there was a statement issued by the Metropolitan Police saying that while they will conduct further inquiries there will be no formal investigation at this time so the police basically scoping out what has gone on trying to understand the information that there is available but no formal police investigation at this time we're told and then a dramatic twist a couple of hours ago the bbc have received a lawyer's letter on behalf of the young person at the center of this alleged scandal And the young person says that the claims that were made in the tabloids this week are rubbish. That is the word that is used. And they say that nothing inappropriate and nothing unlawful took place between the young person and this BBC presenter who is still unnamed. So the newspaper tonight, The Sun is Fighting Back. They have quotes from this young person's mother who made the allegation in the first place, uh, questioning where the young person has got the cash to pay for a big-wig legal firm in London to issue that statement on their behalf, and the mother is standing by the allegations.
3: This now, um, a battle for the truth between The Sun newspaper and the BBC.
8: It is, and I'm sure there will be more on the front page of the tabloids tomorrow. I mean, the frustration for the media here is that this story and the information is being controlled by one tabloid because nobody else knows the family in question, nobody else knows the young person's identity, and no journalist has been able to verify anything else, so it's all being heavily led by the Sun newspaper. Now, tomorrow will be a significant day because, believe it or not, it is the timing of the BBC's annual report publication, so the Director General has to appear in front of the media tomorrow and field questions from journalists. Now, normally, these things are quite boring, and it's all about pay of presenters, as we've all been following in Ireland for the last few weeks. So, you know, you can expect the same kind of questions. I think tomorrow, Tim Davey, Director General of the BBC, there will be questions about why it took, from the middle of May, when this allegation was first made by the young person's mother, why did it take seven weeks for the BBC to formally start looking uh, internally at what had gone on? and suspending the presenter. So you do get the impression there is a big battle for the truth and a long way to go with this yet.
3: Okay, Ender Brady, thank you for bringing us up to date on the twists and turns with with that particular story. We do appreciate it. And my panel is still here with me, Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne, People Before Profit TD Breed Smith, Business Post Political Correspondent Daniel Murray and Professor Roddy Flynn from DCU. I'm also joined on Skype now by Green Party TD Patrick Costello, who's called for the 12th of July to be made a public holiday south of the border. Um, Patrick, you're very welcome along to the programme. You've hit the headlines today amid all the RTE stuff um, and this is about making the 12th um, a public holiday. The question is, why do you want to do that?
9: Well, look, I, I I welcome the discussion we've had today, but I think simply if we want a shared island, we need to talk about things like this, and we need to talk about how we build that shared island, that shared future. Like I know when we think of the 12th, we usually think of reprehensible things like burning of effigies and um, burning of nationalist symbols. And those things are reprehensible. But I think it's important to remember not all communities mark the day in that way. And I think we need to move beyond sectarianism if we're going to have a shared future together. And I think make marking this as a consequential day is an important day in the history of all 32 counties is one way we can move beyond that sectarianism and we can promote reconciliation and, as I say, a shared island.
3: Uh, You talk about uh, getting beyond sectarianism, but people would say that this day actually is inherently political by nature and not akin to St. Patrick's Day, that it actually has obviously different connotations and it's very different historically. Uh, How culturally important do you think it is for people on the island as a whole?
9: Well, I think it is a very consequential day in terms of the history of the island. We can't deny that. Um, and we can't deny that the original day there were winners and there were losers and there was, very, there was a lot of, of darkness attached to the day. But it has become, uh, in more recent years, a much broader cultural celebration, as has St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day is, has moved well beyond an individual saint into a broader cultural celebration. Yeah. And St. Patrick's Day is not a, is not a public holiday in the, in the six counties. And I think it should right. be as part of that shared conversation about how we share this small little island together and how we have those things. So I do think that it is important to acknowledge those, the, the, the twin heritage and the twin cultures on this island and find a way that we can all live together because... That's ultimately what
3: we have to do. Uh, Twin heritage and twin cultures, Breed Smith, what do you think of an idea of making it a public holiday on the island as a whole? Well, it's
7: it's not a unique call that Patrick is making today. He's repeating a call that has been made. But I totally disagree with it. And um, I read a very interesting article some years ago about the history of the Orange Order. And it's worth reflecting on it because the 12th of July is all about celebrating the Orange Order. And it was actually founded not to celebrate uh, Orange culture, but it was actually founded in 1783, uh, a few years before the 1798 rebellion, in order to quell any dissent among smart Alec Protestants um, who were forming the United Irishmen at the time. If you remember Wolf Tone and Henry Joy McCracken, these were all Presbyterians, and their idea of forming the United Irishmen was to have a revolution in the country to get rid of the yoke of. Uh, the church and the monarchy dwelling over us. And it was, the Orange Order was about putting manners on what they called uh, the rebel or the rabble rousing Protestants. And it has had a terrible history of sectarianism, absolutely, utterly brutal history of sectarianism. And I don't think it's something to celebrate. And in fact, I think there's an assumption that all people who come from a Protestant tradition in the North would want to celebrate that culture. Actually, they wouldn't. And increasingly, As we go through the 21st century, there are more and more people in the north not identifying with loyalism, not identifying with republicanism, but identifying with a modern kind of Ireland. So really, I'd love if Patry made more suggestions about how we share the health service, how we share transport, how we share uh, education, how we share the the things that we value on this island, because there are still people who can't travel either side of the border for hip operations and stuff because they don't have the status to move. And I am not in favour of this idea that there's a twin culture and that there's some legitimacy about the history of the Orange Order. There is not.
3: What Breed Smith is saying, Malcolm, is that this would be a huge step backwards. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I'm not opposed uh, to the
0: idea of an an additional holiday for for workers on this island. Um, Should should the
3: 12th be enshrined in a public holiday?
0: Well, I I think what we need to look at, and I think this is an interesting point from where Patrick is is coming through, if we move toward a shared island or an agreed island, so if in the morning we ended up on this one island being one unified constitutional entity, on the island of 7.2 million people, over a million people would still define themselves as British or Unionist. And I think we have to look at, in what way within this island do we recognise those who have, cultural, uh, who have cultural differences? And part of that may be around, uh, if the 12th of July is viewed as an important public holiday, uh, for those who describe themselves as Unionist, we may need uh, to consider that. So do you agree a with range Patrick? range of other issues. I, I, th- I think it's a useful debate. I certainly wouldn't do it now, um, because Why I don't not think it's appropriate. because they're burning posters yeah, the think, and, I, and the Taoiseach and the effigies and I think, the pallets. and. I, I think it's an, it's an appalling uh, it, it's appalling what's going on at the moment. But I do think what we do need to do is to look at recognizing and what has arguably gone on for years. It, it it has been, but actually, if we think about the twelfth of July, sixteen ninety, was actually a crucial debate date in European history, and we do need to understand it to a far greater extent. I'm not supporting it now but i do think we do need to look at how uh, we can recognise minority cultures and by the way i do agree with breach we need to have those debates around a common health service and so on if your party hadn't have supported brexit uh, I actually Brege, I actually believe that we could have had more constructive con- conversations we, in those we, areas. We
7: are having constructive conversations in those areas, but not with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. We're having them with civil civic society. And unfortunately, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have upheld a system that there is uh, no uh, ability for people to cross the border to shared house. The Shared Islands health, the shared island
0: unit food. is has been... The Shared Islands unit has been enormously successful, Breach, and your party's support for Brexit... I would actually argue, has done more uh, to damage relations, cross-border relations on, on this island. Well, I think... I, I, I would actually... I, think I just
3: wanted to briefly respond I know to that before we get over
7: but I think you're giving us far too much credence there to say that our party has done well, more you, damage. Were you, wrong? Were, you, were you wrong to support Brexit? No, we were Brexit? not. We, course, we did not okay. support Brexit. All right, a, did support Brexit. A, we did not support Brexit from a left-wing point, from a point of view of the Tory Brexit. We supported a Brexit that would say that ordinary people should have more control over what goes on in Europe. You, you still that voted Europe's, for Brexit. Actually, we didn't campaign for it. And this is the crucial thing. We did not Reed. join the DUP in any campaign no, for it. I just, but your attack makes us okay. look like we're more important okay. than we
3: are. I'm conscious that we have two other guests on our panel here and I'd, I'd like to get the views of, of Roddy and Daniel in on it briefly. Um, as a point of reconciliation, I'm not seeing much reconciliation here now, <laughs> but on a point of reconciliation or a very divided of day. Um, How how do you see it sitting, Roddy? And do you think there's any, I mean, you can say there wouldn't be much appetite for it south of the border, can't you? Uh,
6: yeah, I think that's more than fair to say. I, I have a Presbyterian grandfather; he was actually a Freemason um, from the Isle of Skye. Um, most of my family is from the Republic of Ireland, um, but I have a British passport and an Irish passport, so I understand the kind of the idea that there are absolute kind of identities is a very problematic one, and I suspect that's true for pretty much everyone at this table. If you go far enough back, um, we are absolutely going to have to confront somewhere in the next. Two decades, three decades, that it was going to be, but we're getting to that point where um, the idea of a united 32-county Ireland is not just going to be some theoretical construct, it is going to be there. And I think the value of what has been proposed here is that it opens the rhetorical space where we have those very difficult conversations. Um, I, 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 I recognise, as has been pointed out, that within um, aspects of the loyalist community, That it is seen as a a kind of a folk tradition um, and a relatively harmless thing. But it also looks from the other side, it looks divisive, it looks triumphalist. I can't see how, in a, is 1% of the Republic of Ireland population um, pro unionist? I doubt it. I I can't really see why you'd have a public holiday celebrating that.
3: Okay. Okay. Uh, Listen, my thanks to you, Roddy, and to Patrick, who joined us on Skype. The others are staying on with me. Coming up next, planet Earth hits record temperatures. Stay with us. Last week saw the highest ever global average temperatures ever recorded, according to data from climate tracking agencies. Global average Temperatures surpassed 17 degrees last week as experts warned that climate change is reaching uncharted territory. The rising temperatures have raised concerns among climate scientists that the planet could be facing a tipping point. Well, Malcolm Byrne, Reid Smith, Daniel Murray are still here with me. I'm also joined now by Sunday Times Ireland climate editor Joe Linehan. Joe, you're very welcome along to the programme. We've had record breaking temperatures. We've had the hottest June on record, uh, a drought in Spain. Heat waves in China and, and the US, as well as state flooding in, in New York State uh, and floods in Japan. And um, it seems we are seeing real weather extremes right now. How, how much of a red flag are all of these when we look at the, the cli- climate events we're seeing and, and the state the planet's in?
10: It's not even a red flag anymore. I think we really need to stop talking about climate change as something that's coming down the tracks in 20 years. We're in it. Unfortunately, the time to stop climate change has passed. And now we're in a situation where we need to try and mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. I mean, what we're seeing in the likes of Spain and other countries is just a taster of what's to come. Um, It's frightening. And the kind of policies that are having to be implemented in places like Spain, you know, naming their heat waves that the, you know, people will know that it's not just a hot day, it's a dangerously hot day. Mm -hmm. We're going to see things like that all over the world. And, you know, places like Ireland, we're very lucky, we have a temperate climate right now, but we are going to become a destination where people are fleeing to and and coming to to escape these extreme weather conditions.
3: Uh, You take issue with the language used around global warming, even the term global warming, which indicates it's all about hot weather and that we, you know, in the language we use, we're not taking it seriously enough.
10: Absolutely. I think especially in a country like Ireland, you know, we think of warming as a good thing. We all want a little bit more sunshine. So the the language doesn't really illustrate what's happening. We're not just talking about hotter weather. We're talking about flooding. We're talking about what we've seen in New York, you know, that kind of air pollution. We're talking about, you know, our food not being edible because of the levels of pollution and because of crops dying, the spread of disease. We saw that with COVID-19. There's so much more than just global warming that comes into it or climate change, I think they're very neutral uh, terms. We need to start talking about the really severe impacts that this is going to have, the severe weather conditions and and how it's going to affect absolutely everyone.
3: Yeah, and yet, um, Breed, some would blame the politicians on all of this, saying the political will is absent when it comes to how we respond um, to the climate crisis that we are in that it's all talk and and no action and that you have sort of lobbying and interest groups that are influencing uh, politicians in a lack of decision-making around key changes that we're supposed to be making right now.
7: Yeah, well, I think that there is a catastrophic failure on behalf of politicians to really tackle the vested interests. I mean, they're always calling for behavioural change from us as individuals, you know, whether it's getting out of our um, diesel car into an electric car or, you know, I know, eaten differently or whatever. But actually, the structural changes that are needed are enormous and they never confront them. Like, they haven't confronted the, what we're going to do about the size of the dairy here. They refuse to do that. They don't confront the proliferation of data centres that we're seeing astronomical. Amazon, for example, have 150 diesel backup generators in this country alone to provide for the uh, energy that they may, mm-hmm. may need. And science is telling us we have to stop building more fossil fuel infrastructure. That's more fossil fuel infrastructure in the country and it needs to end. And we haven't tackled things like uh, the the idea that we need a state-run energy company rather than relying on private industry to deliver uh, renewable energy. There's a whole more things we could do and do it in a positive way so that people like farmers and workers and people who might be able to gain from free public transport, etc., don't see this as a problem but see it as a positive. Uh,
3: Daniel, would you agree with the, the vested interests here um, that are you know, taking from an ability to, to implement? Uh, Real change in this country, and maybe move towards. And I know uh, Joe has been writing about um, why isn't Ireland like Denmark when we have when they have data centers, they make them, um, you know, build the the energy. Regeneration on site before they allow them to go ahead?
1: Yeah, I do. I think it's the case in this country. I think it's the case internationally as well. Um, The motto at some of the recent uh, climate change UN conferences was to keep 1.5 degrees alive. Um, And it now looks like we're going to sail past 1.5 degrees in this decade. And at the moment, we're on track really for at least two degrees, if not three or four degrees warming by the end of this century. And that will have catastrophic consequences when it boils down to individual countries trying to do their bit that will add up hopefully to the overall pie of, of reducing emissions, that's where the vested interests really get their, their teeth in and at every point when climate action has tried to be taken, when the rubber hits the road those vested interests have popped up we've seen it in political backlash to the nature restoration law in recent weeks, we saw it in the furious reaction to even the suggestion that we would begin to reduce the number of cars coming into our cities a couple of months ago, we've seen it in the banning of smoking mm. smoky fuels trying to limit data centre expansion, moving away from one-off, unsustainable housing, all of these things, when the rubber hits the road, uh, the vested interests come out, uh, and and often the government has, has unfortunately caved to them.
3: Uh, Would you agree with that? The government has caved, Malcolm? Uh, I I, I wouldn't agree. I I first of all want to say... Well, there's some key examples there that that Daniel has given around around that, which are all very true when it comes to us reaching our Well, let me say,
0: first of all, in terms of the political response, and the Oireachtas Climate Committee uh, worked very well in a collegial way, and I do want to pay tribute uh, to Breed for her work um, on that committee. Uh, I think that they did a very good piece of work, which ultimately led to the climate change legislation, we are facing, there are political difficulties. We still have climate sceptics uh, and populists in politics, and we've seen it across but Europe. But even the climate sceptics say,
3: actually, no, we do see that there's climate change. We just don't want to do but anything they, they, about they, it. They're
0: not doing anything about it. And the reality is, is, is that... You know, they are quite content to exploit for political reasons efforts on the part but of the government. You, what what about what about the well, argument
3: that the government is is not standing up with, up to this well, when it comes to the changes that need to be made? Well,
0: I, I would make the point that we've we've got to bring people with us, uh, and by simply pointing the finger uh, at the farming community, you're not going to bring farmers with us. The overwhelming majority of farmers get climate change. They can see it on the ground. They see the invasive species. They right. see the change in weather conditions. It is critical in terms of climate change. We bring people with us. I think the climate legislation we have, the changes in planning and development law, particularly for renewable energies and offshore renewable, are going to be critical. Government gets it. But we've got to bring people with us All to right. and to not uh,
3: And not before time. We are, unfortunately, out of time. I didn't even get to talk to Breed Smith about her impending retirement from politics. So we do wish her well. Um, I'm but that is not retiring from politics not, at all. <laughs> no, we are, you, you are retiring <laughs> your seat ahead of the next election. <laughs> it's
0: a big, big job it. in RTE. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Maybe exactly. news beckons there. Won't, you won't give up on the activism. That, thing, that one thing I am sure about, Breed. Uh, that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, but from all the late team here, Good night. Take care.